And we're really excited about this brand new message series we're, we're starting today called Journey of Faith. It really looks back at kind of what are the core kind of fundamental beliefs that we have as Methodists. Uh, we are, now of course it's not going to be an exhaustive discussion, it would take us more than four weeks to talk about all our beliefs. So we're going to really kind of focus in on what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, you know, what does salvation look like in the Methodist tradition. Uh, because it's very important for two reasons. First of all, it's the most important thing we could ever talk about, and I've gotten to talk about it many times in my life, and I never grow tired of talking about it. In fact, it only gets better and better, so that's pretty exciting. And second of all, um, it's really important to us because uh, if, you, if you follow our emails, if, you're, if you've been around here for a little bit and you get those, uh, you know that our denomination is in a challenging time. The United Methodist Church is going through hardship in a variety of ways. And we here at Anderson Hills, we're in a season where our church council is discerning uh, what our denominational future might look like. They're going to make a recommendation to our church body because a decision about our denominational future is not a decision for pastors or for the church council. It's for the church membership to make. And uh, that, that's a significant thing for us to discuss. Uh, it's a decision that ultimately will be made uh, by members um, as we will vote on this, likely this fall. Uh, so if you're here and you're not a member and you say, well, I'd really like to be part of that uh, de de decision, uh, you can do that. We have our spiritual growth track class that is starting really soon, September 11th. It's a Sunday morning class. Uh, actually takes place, I think we got a slide about this, uh, that take, uh, nope, spiritual growth track class uh, takes place at 9 o'clock on September 11th, and it's going to be a class that will be really helpful for you in growing in your faith, uh, but also in talking about uh, what it means to uh, be United Methodist and to be a member of this church. So I invite you to take part of that. I personally, I love the United Methodist Church very much. It is a key part of who I am. I grew up in one. In fact, we've got a slide here uh, from my home church. This is just the front area, the chancel of that sanctuary. One very much like this in a, <clears throat> in a lot of ways. I gotta get a drink, sorry. I love it so much it chokes me up a little bit apparently. <laughs> a lot of really important things in my life happened in that room. In fact, if we could make it kind of like this room, uh, in uh, the winter, 1979-1980, I was brought up to kind of this side of the room. This is where we would do infant baptisms, and I was baptized as a baby there at Peoria First United Methodist Church. Uh, a few years later, uh, 1992, 1993, I was in seventh grade, uh, right down about this area of the church. I knelt, they laid hands on me, and I was confirmed uh, in our faith as, as Christians and as a follower of Jesus. And then in, uh, on June 16th, 2001, I stood about this place in there, right next to that girl right there, and we promised till death do us part that we would love each other, be married, be committed to one another. So there's a lot of really important stuff in my life that happened right there. I've ordained in the United Methodist Church. Uh, the, Methodist, the United Methodist Churches that I've served here in West Ohio have been so impactful in my life and our family in terms of our faith and our own spiritual growth. So I've got a whole lot of love for it. There's kind of 
two sides to the United Methodist Church. The first is the institutional side. We are a 12 million member denomination uh, with six million roughly members here in the United States. So that's a big organization uh, with a complex structure. We have a political structure that was actually modeled after the United States government, so take that for what it's worth. (laughs) It is what it is. Um, It's a complicated thing to govern a large denomination, a global denomination like ours. And so this institutional side of the United Methodist Church was founded in 1968. It was not founded by John Wesley. uh, There were a number of Methodist denominations that come out of that, so we trace our roots back to him, but we're not just the original. There's been a variety of Methodist groups along the way, and there still are today. Uh, we, We were founded then. Since that time, since 1968, unfortunately, we've been in slow and eventually rapid decline ever since. We, we have literally lost people. We've lost more people than we've gained every single year of our existence. It's tragic. This, this decline accelerated greatly in the uh, ter- about turn of the century as our decline shifted uh, to where we used to lose about 3% a decade. Today, Pre-COVID, we were losing 3% per year. So 30% a decade is not a sustainable number. This is something that's been looked at for quite a while. In fact, back in 2014, Don House, our leading economic expert, uh, looked at the the decline of the denomination. And he said, if we do not turn the tide on membership decline by 2030, we will be unable to do so. That by 2050, we will cease to exist as a denomination. That's tough. Unfortunately, we've only increased our decline since that time and that's before COVID hit and made a a huge hit in every church. So there's a lot, and then of course there's a lot of debates around beliefs and all of these kinds of things. Uh, And and so it's a challenging season for the institution, and that's why we're discerning our future as a church in that institution. Because Anderson Hills has not experienced that type of thing. In fact, our experience as a church here has been very different. We've experienced growth in that time where the denomination has been declining. But, but I want you to know that I speak for myself and the other pastors and really the staff. We've all talked about this. We have peace about our future. We do. Because the fact is, our church is not founded on United Methodism alone. While that's a very important part of who we are, our church is founded on Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is not in decline, is not struggling. Jesus is changing lives around the world. And we know that God is going to continue to do that through Anderson Hills as well. We have peace about this, even in the midst of challenge. Like I said, there's two sides of this coin. There's the institutional side, which is going through a lot of challenge. But there's the belief side, which is unchanging. The belief side, which is who we are as a church. This is, these are the things that define us. And these trace back to John Wesley. John Wesley, was, uh, he lived in the 1700s, born in 1703. And in this series, we're going to look at, at, his, at, at the, this great legacy of faith that we've inherited through him. You know, this journey of faith 
is something that's so central to us because in a season where a lot of folks get really stressed out about the denomination itself, I believe that our central core beliefs are what's going to bring us through this time as a church. Because I can assure you, no matter what we decide in terms of our denominational future, our foundational beliefs, our core beliefs, are not changing. They're not changing. We are going to continue to be the church that we have always been, and God is going to use us in powerful ways. I strongly know and believe this with all my heart. John Wesley taught us a lot about salvation. And, and one of the things that was interesting about Wesley was he believed something that was actually pretty countercultural at the time. Wesley believed in something called original sin. And original sin, to, it means that we, when we're born, we're not great. <laughs> no, we are born as people who are sinners. We are made in God's image, so there's a tension. We're made in God's image, and yet we inherit this sinful nature. This was controversial in Wesley's day because he lived in a time called the Enlightenment. And during the Enlightenment, uh, people believed that, it, that humans were inherently good. So when Wesley taught, no, we're not, Wesley taught that, that we have this sin nature that we have inherited, and so it wasn't popular to argue against that. But original sin is, is real, and here's why. Romans 5.12, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone has sinned. Okay, so that's where Wesley gets this from. This is foundational, Okay. Now, I want to illustrate this for us, because sometimes theological concepts can be a little bit kind of out there and challenging to understand. So I'm going to need six volunteers, and the second row of the choir, I noticed, has six people. Would you all be willing to volunteer and come on forward? That's kind of voluntold, don't you think? But, you know, could you all, <laughs> you're not doing it, so maybe this is unsuccessful. Would you all stand up, come forward? There's going to be no solos, no speeches, I promise. I'm going to have you stand right here and just kind of help me illustrate this for us. They're going to illustrate for us what humanity looks like and how this original sin stuff kind of works. Um, so I'm going to have you all stand kind of right down here. In fact, would you go sit by Jennifer, okay? You're going to get to sit for a moment. Just a moment, I promise. The other five right here, I've told them nothing about this. That's why they're getting, giving me the funny looks. But uh, uh, So you're going to represent humanity for us, okay? And I'm actually going to rename you here today. Your new name is Eve, okay? Because you're married to a guy named Adam. Yep, you got it. You lived in a beautiful garden, right? Yeah. And uh, you were tending that garden, walking with God. Things were going great. Um, there was one rule, though. It was about a tree, right? And you guys kind of messed that up, didn't you? Yeah. They took the fruit, and we're all kind of a little disappointed in you, Eve. I'm not going to lie. But then we've all messed up, too, right? So, you know, it's kind of on us, too. So Eve and Adam, they represent all of us, okay? Adam and Eve are representatives of all of humanity. You might be like, well, that's not fair. I didn't vote for Eve, right? I didn't vote for Adam. I would have voted for the people who didn't eat from the tree. Well, 
Sorry, it is what it is, right? So Eve, you're our representative. Would you all join hands for a minute to kind of symbolize this? So this sin, it kind of gets passed down from Eve generation to generation to generation. So just like Romans 5 said, when we're born, we're born sinners, okay, because of this. And so, in fact, I've got some, got some things here. We know Eve's sin. She had the, the fruit issue, right? Would you take one of these out and, um, yeah, just hang on to it. I'm going to have you read it in just a minute here because we need to understand what kind of sinners we're dealing with up here on this stage, okay? So we've, we've got them right here, okay? So this is the only, it's not really a speech, but the only thing I'll make you share. So, all right, sinner number one, what do we got here? Uh, a violent bank robber. We, we could see that one coming here, right? Yes, a, a violent bank robber right here. Okay, sinner number two. The world's biggest liar, ouch. You know, the last service they threw me for a loop. That sinner number two said, I've never sinned in my life. Uh-huh, the world's biggest liar. We've all told some lies, right? So, goodness gracious. Sinner number three, what do we got here? I am a stingy Scrooge. Ooh, a stingy Scrooge, not generous at other. And sinner number four? Oh, a Michigan fan. Ooh, Ooh, boy. We may have saved the worst for last. I'm not sure. Wow, goodness gracious. So clearly, here we are, and we are lost. We are dead in our sins. In fact, I'm I'm not going to chain you up, I promise. But we're going to just use this to be symbolic. So I'm just going to lay it in front of you here that this is where all of us stand as humans. We have this chain of sin that we inherited from Adam and Eve. We pass down generation to generation to generation, and this is original sin. And you say, well, it's not fair. It it seems hopeless. Well, let's see what God's Word has to say. Give me the next scriptures here from Romans. Now, Adam is a symbol, and when we say Adam, we mean Adam and Eve are symbols, a representation of Christ who was yet to come. But there's a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For by the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. Here we go. We see that. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And so now, Jesus, you get to enter the picture, okay? Again, we know Jesus was a guy. We get that, right? But I called on what? Are you the soprano or alto or little mix? The the mix, yes. All right, all right. I called on that section. I want you to stand right in the middle here. Just don't trip on the chain there. So Jesus steps in, and can you all join hands here? And once again, humanity is interconnected. And you see in here, the, very di- the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. So you see, by the sins of one person, Adam and Eve, or two people, sin enters in the world. But that interconnectedness is what makes it possible for us to be saved. Because Jesus functions like a second Adam, right? It's like Adam part two. 
except Jesus doesn't sin. He doesn't mess up like you and me and Adam and Eve and everybody else. Jesus comes, he lives the perfect life, and so consequently, when Jesus goes to the cross, all of our sin went and it rested upon Jesus. He took all of it on his shoulders. That price that I could never pay, that you could never pay, Jesus himself paid it. He paid the debt that I could never pay, that none of us could ever pay, that Adam and Eve could never pay. And in doing so, when he took our sin, he took our shame, he took our guilt, he made it possible for us to be made right with Christ, right with the Lord. And so now we have hope, we have healing, we have forgiveness, and we can experience that thanks to God's gracious gift. Let's give our choir members a hand. Thank you for being such good sports. You can all go back. I would have called the first six people out there, but y'all sit far enough back anyway. You'd sit even farther back next Sunday, right? I, I know how this thing works. I think they're pretty committed, right? So to being in the choir. So I, if we lose the second row next week, it's my fault though, okay? I'll, I'll own that. But this is original sin. This is, and so it talks about our being made right with God. How does that happen? Because if we look around the world, we say, well, does this mean, did Wesley believe that everyone is made right with God, that, that Jesus dies and it just kind of forces forgiveness on everybody out there, no choice, no option? No. Because if that were the case, we'd all be robots, wouldn't we? We wouldn't have any say in the matter. We wouldn't be choosing to love God and that's not what Wesley believed. Let me give you some contrast here. About 175 years before John Wesley, there was a guy named John Calvin who lived, also a very influential theologian, uh, taught many great things. But he and Wesley differed on some certain things. And one of, one of them is this. Both of them agreed that we have original sin, and that, that original sin is it's a big problem because it separates us from God. In fact, the Bible teaches that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, when you're dead, you can't fix that. You can't do anything about that. You can't bring yourself back to life. So the Bible's intentional in that metaphor. We, we were dead in our sins. No hope of finding God, no hope of being saved. This was where humanity was at. This is what's passed down from Adam and Eve. So Wesley and Calvin both believed that a human could be saved, of course. So how do we get out of that place of being dead in our sins? They both believed that humans are incapable of doing this on our own strength, that we could not fix that sin problem, that it could only be done by God but they differed in how the, this would take place. Calvin taught that people could come to God, that they could be pulled out of their original sin because of something he called limited atonement. And that means that God chose certain people, uh, those who are followers of Jesus, he chose them before the foundation of the world, the elect, if you will, and that they would be chosen for salvation and that others would be chosen for damnation. You might say, well, whoa, whoa, that's not fair at all. I don't like that. Well, Calvin would say, look, what's fair is death. Okay, that's what you get. As sinners, we all sin. That, that's what you get. So if anybody gets saved, that's grace. God can do that if God wants to be gracious. But if everybody were condemned, that would have been fair. Wesley looked at it differently. 
Wesley, instead of believing in this limited atonement, Wesley instead believed in something he called prevenient grace. And that is a grace that goes before salvation. Okay, so it's not a saving grace, but it's, think like a, like a flashlight shining in the dark. It's like a light that shines in the dark and gives us enough light to walk and, and get close to Jesus, to be able to hear God's voice, to be able to understand our condition, to be able to understand God's free gift, and to be able to choose voluntarily to give our life to Jesus. So Wesley believes that, that followers of Jesus were there by our own free will choice, not by a sovereign choice made a long time ago, but by our own free will choice, and that, that God's grace is for everybody, that God's gift is for everybody. That's why when we celebrate communion in a little bit, our table is open to all who want to take that next step in faith towards Jesus. It's not just open to Methodists. It's not just oh, oh, open to members. No, everybody who wants to take that next step in faith towards Jesus is welcome at our table because it's Jesus' table, not ours. So Wesley believed that this is how we would encounter God's grace, through, or God's love through provenient grace. He based this on John 1.9. It's talking about Jesus, and it says, The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So we call this provenient grace, that Jesus is the one who gives true light to everyone, not the elect, everyone. This grace is for everyone. It's also been called the hound dog of heaven. This grace is always hunting us down. And see, maybe you're here and you're like, yeah, I know it. I spent a lot of years running from Jesus. I spent a lot of years trying to live life my own way. A lot of time doing that. But God kept pursuing me. God didn't give up on me. Maybe you're here today because of God's provenient grace. Maybe you haven't really given your life to Jesus, or you did a while back, but you have gotten off track from that kind of thing. And maybe God's got you here right now so that you can hear him calling you back, so you can sense in your spirit God's love for you, God's grace in your life. You may have given up on God, but God's not given up on you. He's faithful. He loves you. He cares about you. Provenient grace, it's not enough to save us, but it puts us in position to say yes to the Lord. And when we say yes to God, we are saved. Wesley called that justifying grace, that in an instant, our lives are changed. We are saved. We are made right with God when we give our lives to him. Isaiah 61.10 says, I'm overwhelmed with joy of the Lord my God, for he's dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me in a robe of righteousness. I'm like a bridegroom dressed for his wedding or a bride with her jewels. I love that, that God's grace is placed upon us like a garment, that, that our sin is removed and is replaced with this garment of God's love and grace and forgiveness, that no matter how much we've messed up in life, that God forgives us, that there's no way you could sin so much you could be outside the reach of God's grace. It's impossible, because that would imply you could have earned it or deserved it, and you can't. It's a gift freely given. And so it brings us a lot of joy because we realize this isn't an earned thing. It's a given thing. It's not something we've worked really hard to deserve. No, it's something that's been freely given. And for John Wesley, this was a truth that was not just up here. It was in his heart. 
Let me tell you how it got there. Wesley uh, was, he was born to Samuel and Susanna Wesley. Uh, he was one of 19 children. <laughs> That's a lot of kids. 19 children. They didn't all sadly make it out of childhood as was the case in that day. Several died early on in childhood. John was raised predominantly by his mom, Susanna, who was a saint. She was an amazing person who loved her children very much. She was pretty strict. She homeschooled them all. She would set aside one hour a week to meet with each one of them to help them to grow in their faith. Uh, and and she, was, um, she was a great parent to the kids because Samuel, Samuel had his struggles. He was an ordained pastor in the Church of England, the Anglican Church, and quite frankly, he wasn't a great pastor. Uh, Samuel was not very effective in ministry. He, uh, the Church of England was the national church. He was promoted because of his political ties. And Samuel and Susanna would have significant differences. In fact, at one point, they would even separate, which was extremely uncommon in those days. And, and Samuel would eventually end up in debtor's prison, which is unfortunate when your pastor gets sent to debtor's prison, you know. <laughs> um, the associate would take over, and interestingly, the associate, uh, the church struggled during that time. Susanna would begin teaching a Sunday night Bible study because the associate was commonly preaching on paying your debts. So, see, maybe Samuel had uh, owed some money to the associate. I'm not sure, but seems suspicious. So, so Wesley, as a young child, this was the environment in which he grew up. And when Wesley was five years old, something uh, powerful happened in his life. Their house caught on fire, and he was in an upstairs bedroom. The, the fire was very serious, and it appeared that Wesley was going, John Wesley was going to die in the fire. In fact, just moments before the roof collapsed, neighbors stood on one another's shoulders. I don't know if you can see about that. They're standing on each other's shoulders and reached up and rescued little John from the burning house. Susanna would say that he was her branch who God had plucked from the fire and that God had a special purpose for his life. At age 10, John would be sent to boarding school. It's a pretty strict place, and John would learn a very regimented lifestyle and faith, or he'd build on a regimented lifestyle and faith. Later, he would go to attend Oxford University in England. He would study to become a pastor. He himself would be ordained, as his father was, in the Church of England. Wesley and his friends were extremely meticulous in how they lived out their faith. In fact, the name Methodist was given to us as an insult. They said that they were methodical in their faith, so they called them Methodists. <laughs> insulting names have changed over time, but apparently that was insulting at the time. So, so this is John, and, and he's very serious about his faith. He attends church multiple times on a Sunday morning. He attends multiple Sunday small groups throughout the week, Bible studies. He uh, is known for giving alms to the poor and for giving generously to his church. He uh, is someone who, was, who lived out, he, he worked to live out his faith in so many ways. In fact, he even signed up to be a missionary in the New World, and he sailed over to uh, what is now the state of Georgia. It was the colony of Georgia at the time, where he was attempting to convert Native Americans. His missionary journey was a complete failure. 
In fact, he himself got into legal trouble and had to flee the colony at night to get on a boat headed back to England. We'll talk about this in more detail later, but in a different message, but on that return ride home, John would be, find himself in a bad place. He was, he was depressed about his failure, and then a massive storm came up. The storm was threatening to the ship, and John thought he might die, and he was absolutely terrified. He was absolutely terrified by the thought that he might meet God very soon. And yet there were others on the, 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 the ship, even little children, who were singing praises to God in the midst of that storm. John got home, and he decided his faith didn't really mean much. If, if this was all his faith was, if his faith couldn't even sustain him through a storm, and if the thought of meeting his creator was terrifying to him, what did he have? He was ready to quit and give up. But he didn't. He didn't. Friends encouraged him to, to continue on in his ministry and his faith. And a few years later, John would go to a Bible study at a church or at a house on a street called Aldersgate where his life would be changed. Check this out. It represents a watershed moment in his spiritual journey. Somebody who has some sense of who God is and what God means and what God's about in their head, but doesn't feel it or the spirit stirs in him in a way that a dynamic connection is made between what he believes about God in his head and now what he feels and experiences about God in his heart, in his emotions. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. It was the sense that God loved him even him, that was life-changing. In early 1738, John Wesley was at a low point. Having just returned from his disappointing missionary efforts at the colony of Georgia in the New World, Wesley reluctantly attended a group meeting on the evening of May 24th on Aldersgate Street in London. As he heard a reading from Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans, he felt his heart strangely warmed. He writes in his journal, I felt that God loved me. I experienced that God loved me. It was no longer something that was in my head, but it's something that I felt in my heart. Wesley was the son of a preacher and grew up in a devoutly religious home, but the dynamic connection to God made at Aldersgate was new to him. He felt his heart strangely warmed. Here's a guy who had faith in his head, and even in his actions, but it hadn't made that journey to his heart, that he hadn't understood his relationship with God. He would later write that he had the faith of a servant, not the faith of a son. Maybe you're there today. The faith of a servant is an earned thing. I'm going to try to work hard to please God. I'm going to do my best. That's what a servant does. I'm going to do the absolute best at what I can to try to earn people's appreciation and whatever it is I'm trying to earn here. A son is very different. For the faith of a son, a son or daughter knows who they are. 
A son or daughter doesn't earn the right to be in the family. No, they are freely given the right. They are born or adopted into the family. It's not something they ever did. It's something that was freely given to them. It's not something they ever earned. And Wesley began to see his faith as this, that instead of being something that he could somehow earn and work, that it is purely an act of grace, an act of God's goodness, that God loved the world so much that he sent his son Jesus to give his life for John Wesley and for me and for you and for the whole world, and that we can all make this choice to choose to give our lives to Jesus. Wesley knew this here and here now. He felt it in his spirit. And you know, maybe you're here today, and you're here with kind of that faith of a servant. Or maybe say, you know, honestly, I'm not sure if I'm even there yet. I I don't know that I have a faith. Friend, God's reaching out to you. That hound dog of heaven's been following you. And he's not going to force you. It's a free choice. But it's a choice that if you want to be in right relationship with God, if you want to experience the forgiveness of your sins, if you want to have eternal life in heaven, it's a choice that we must make and that we make with joy because we realize how incredible this gift is, how undeserved it is, and just how truly amazing it is. So I'm going to pray in a moment, and you can pray right along with me where you're at and ask Jesus to come into your life and to save you. Or maybe for you, you have that faith of a, of a servant and, and, and ask the Lord to, to just to touch your heart and to help you to know that assurance that God loves you and his grace is for you. So God, I confess that I'm a sinner. I've messed plenty of things up in my life. I can't, on my own, earn my way into a right relationship with you. There's no way. I thank you, Jesus, that you came and you took my sins on your body, that you who had never sinned paid the price for my sins and everybody else in this whole world. Thank you, Jesus. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it, but you freely gave it. I'm thankful. Lord, would you come into my heart? Would you forgive me of my sins? Would you break that chain? Would you free me to live eternally with you? Thank you, Jesus.